The United States has bumped up against the debt ceiling, and there's a potential U.S. default coming if Congress doesn't do anything. What does that mean for Medicare and Medicare reimbursement? Plus, we'll take a look at some of the other healthcare headlines that matter to you. From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net. With me is Yasben as the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you? I'm good, thanks. I hope you are as well. I am, thank you. And I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be back without technical difficulties this week, so hopefully you can better understand what I'm saying uh, I, I apologize again about that last week. Sometimes it's, we're at the mercy of the internet and we're at the mercy of our devices. And that's just the way the world is now. As you, uh, most definitely heard last week and this week, if you are a, any watcher of cable news or broadcast news for that matter, the U S bumped up against the debt ceiling and Democrats are very quick to point the finger at Republicans saying that they are going to cut Medicare. So we're going to talk about what the debt ceiling means for Medicare and what a possible default means. Plus, later on in the program, we'll go into some other headlines uh, that matter to you. So, Ron, I guess as, as an economist, you can put your economist hat on as we get started. What is the debt ceiling? Well, the debt ceiling is um, the maximum amount of money that the government is allowed to borrow without approval from Congress. Remember, Congress is the only entity that can spend money. Um, and so they have to agree that we can borrow money and in our case, you know, um, print bonds and, and float loans, if you will, um, up to a certain amount. And we've hit it. We've maxed out the governmental credit card. So now before we can spend any more money as far as borrowing money, Congress has to approve it. They have to increase the debt ceiling. And that's what the big showdown and the fight is about. Um, we bumped up against it recently. What happens first is the uh, head of the Secretary of Treasury um, goes into what they call extraordinary measures, which are you know, sort of what a family would do if they maxed out their credit card. They would say, well, let's not spend on that or let's avoid spending that. In the case of our government, they do things like they don't fund pensions or retirements, things that they can always do later down the road. Mm -hmm. And that will extend the, the life of their spending abilities, they're saying right now, until probably about June. Um, at that point, really bad things would happen if there's not a congressional agreement to increase the uh, credit card limit, if you will. So up until June, so you mentioned that we're in some of these extraordinary measures. They're, they're not going to you know, invest in some of the pensions and stuff like that. In the short term, because from what I've understood was that, at least with Secretary Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, she has said um, Social Security is going to be paid for, you know, the people that get Social Security benefits. Uh, and then some commentaries were talking about the rest were almost a flip a coin about whether or not they would be covered. So since we're a healthcare podcast, what about what happens to Medicare during uh, some of these extraordinary measures? 
Medicare claims will still be paid. Okay. Medicare beneficiaries will still be able to get their care. To a large degree, the average person walking around is not going to know that we're in extraordinary measures. Mm -hmm. There are things that are some people call accounting tricks. or And, and the retirement stuff is a perfect example. Um, if they're not funding it right now or the, the federal pensions, it doesn't really do anything um, to the average person. And you can always fund it later. You can sort of play catch up if you will. Mm -hmm. um, it'd be like a, a family saying, well, we have a budget and we save $100 a paycheck into our savings account. Well, if you stop doing that, it doesn't really impact you because that's a savings account. Right. And like you say, when you get back to, you know, you, you, you get a job again or something, you can always go back and re, you know, refill that pot, if you will. So mm -hmm. we really won't feel anything, whether it's Medicare, Social Security, any of that stuff until we get much closer to June. So as we get closer to June, then that's when providers need to start fretting. Oh, if, if this isn't settled by then, and who knows if it will be given Washington these days, if it's not settled by June, is that when providers need to start thinking about, you know, hey, I don't know if I'm going to get paid by Medicare this month, especially when it's something like half their business? Yeah, I mean, if, if we get to June, there's a lot of people that need to be nervous about a lot of things because right. there are a number of things the government will start shutting down. Uh, now, they're not likely to tell the entire FBI to go home and not come to work right. and things like that. But we've seen this before in government shutdowns. National parks will close. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the Smithsonian will close, things like that where they, you know, they're discretionary. They can and probably would put a hold on paying Medicare claims, which turns off revenue to physicians and hospitals. They can, although this would be a pretty dramatic measure, and if they got there, they may have to. They could stop sending out Social Security checks. Um, they start, you know, the government starts to grind to a screeching halt um, because they just don't have the ability to float additional bonds to actually pay for things. Mm -hmm. Now, and in the final end, they could default on some things. You know, if, if somebody has a Treasury uh, bill or a bond that's coming due, they could say, I'm sorry, we don't have the money to pay it. We don't have the money to turn that into cash. Mm -hmm. Um the other thing that the average person would see is you would watch the financial markets absolutely go into a tumble. Um, the the Wall Street and the, the stock market, et cetera, would go through the floor. Worse than 2020 and worse than 08? Um, depending on how long the shutdown is, but yeah. I mean, if, mm -hmm. if the federal government starts defaulting on their bond issues, um, you're going to see an awful lot of things go bad in a hurry um, because so much of, of – um, industry and, and government relies on it, you know, not just hospitals with their Medicare payments or doctors, with their Medicare payments. We think about all the industries or companies that, that have government contracts or get money from the government. Um, what happens when the post office shuts down? What right. happens when, you know, government contracts to build, you know, airplanes and ships, et cetera, suddenly stop and they have to furlough all those people. You see this ripple effect in the economy and we would see a, you know, really nasty um, period of time right then. Mm -hmm. Right now, um, as Wendell Potter points out, because I know he doesn't like uh, the Medicare Advantage plans, but they're, they're poised to be about 50% of all of Medicare enrollees within the next year or so. Um, they'll be on Medicare Advantage rather than original Medicare. What does that mean for the Medicare Advantage plans um, who are, you know, taking a little bit of that responsibility away from the federal budget by covering Medicare? Will those claims still go forward for providers that have contracts with, you know, 
AARP with United Healthcare or any other Medicare Advantage plans? Um, they may and they may not. Okay. Um, because if the government's not paying their Medicare claims, they're also not paying the premiums to the Medicare Advantage plans. Mm-hmm. So if those companies aren't receiving the government funds, they could choose to say that we're, they're doing the same thing, suspending claims payment until such time as they get paid. Um, or they could be magnanimous and make that payment, but they don't necessarily have to at that point. Okay. Um, so you could, if you're, you know, you've got an MA card, you could see the same thing. Now, then the question becomes, let's say the government suspends payment. Are doctors going to suspend, suspend office visits and appointments? Right. You know, are they going to say, well, look, if I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to get paid for this, um, I might not see the person. Now, in the reality, they will get paid. They'll just get paid later. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't just don't know when. Um, it falls but it's, into you know, like I said, it's a, it's an area that gets really nasty really quick. Right. Um, and has an awful lot of problems that associate with it. So, you know, right now what Congress is doing and, and the Congress and the White House are doing it, playing a game of political theater and political chicken. And, you know, it's all of us that are going to suffer if they, you know, if they don't resolve it. Uh, if, if the Medicare Advantage plans quit paying uh, because they're not getting paid by the federal government, contractually, can the providers stop seeing those patients or, or are they required to see those patients? And of course, it might depend on the contract, but I guess we would talk about the majority here. Well, yeah, so there's a there really patients would fall into different buckets. OK, um, patients who are in the middle of ongoing care. Um, contractually, they probably can't stop seeing those patients. They would be in breach of contract. Now, mm-hmm. in one respect, you'd say, well, you know, the plan's in breach of contract for not paying me. So, right. you know, you know, sort of who's in a worse situation. Um, but the patients who are in ongoing care, you know, they're not going to get um, put off. And to be honest with you, I don't think any provider's going to no. do that. Where it gets revolved around is more of that elective care. Where mm-hmm. I'm not in ongoing care, I call to schedule an appointment, and that provider might say, "Look, I'm not opening up these appointments until I know I'm going to get paid, because mm-hmm. I don't know how long this is going to be, and I'm not a bank." Right. Um, those folks could get could get their care delayed or put off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to play for you some sound clips um, of of how some people are reacting to this. Obviously, the White House has gotten a lot of questions about what they're going to do. Um, they seem to be wanting to play chicken with Republicans right now. Here's uh, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre speaking last week. We think that Congress should deal with this in a bipartisan fashion, as they have about 78 times in the past. Uh, This is something that Congress has done. It is their their basic responsibility as a congressional member, and that's what we want to see. Anything else about the specifics, that's up to Congress. But this is something that needs to be dealt with. We're talking about jobs, right? We're talking about seniors. You know, we're talking about veterans. We're talking about real-life potential uh, uh, issues that could affect Americans across the country. So it should not be used in a way to put to hold the debt ceiling in in hostage, right? Uh, because they want to cut Social Security, right? Because Republicans, MAGA Republicans in the House, want to cut Social Security or they want to cut uh, Medicare. That that should not be where we are right now. We should not be uh, moving forward in conversations about the debt ceiling in that way. They should be dealing with it. Now, my take on that was that was a word salad for her to get out to say that Republicans want to cut Social Security and Medicare, and she finally got it out in the last ten seconds of that. Um, but the problem is, is that I haven't heard any Republicans say that they want to do that. And in, in fact, I've heard the opposite. So I'm, I'm curious what you think uh, about the press secretary, press secretary's remarks about 
um, the ongoing debate around what to do about the debt ceiling? Um, you know, this is one where I think, and I'm going to talk about the sides being parties, Republicans and Democrats, which, you know, the Republicans in the House and the Democrats in the, in the White House, where I think both sides are both right and both are both wrong. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what you, the general position from the Republicans of the House is we've got to look at spending. And what they're saying is we want some cut in spending in order to, to increase, you know, to increase the, you know, the debt ceiling. I think we need to look at spending. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're spending like a, you know, a drunken college kid on spring break with daddy's credit card. Um, and what the Democrats in the White House are saying is this isn't the way to do it. You know, we shouldn't hold um, our, the debt ceiling um, hostage over some spending cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's somewhere because they're right. The debt ceiling is about paying our debts that we've already occurred. You know, this isn't a new, this isn't a new spending bill that we've got to do. Right. We've already spent this money, and a lot of this is interest on money we've spent for 20 years, so we, we should pay our bills. Um, but that doesn't, in my opinion, alleviate the need to, we got to talk about spending. Um, I think it's easy for the Democrats to say, well, spending cuts mean Social Security and Medicare, because you really can't have meaningful spending cuts unless you look at entitlements. Right. Um, but I think you're also right. I haven't heard anybody on the Republican side come right out and say, you know, let's cut Social Security and Medicare by X percent. Mm-hmm. Um, I have heard a few of them talk about that we've got to take a look at those programs. Right. And I think we should take a look at those programs. So it's a bunch of political theater. Both sides know that the position they're taking, you know, isn't a pure, you know, I'm right, you're wrong position. It's just a good thing to do to score points right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Chip Roy, I heard uh, last week, and I mentioned this in the Friday Pulse check on Friday, was, was specific in saying he didn't want to, you know, cut Medicare and Social Security, and this wasn't the time to talk about that. But um, I, to play devil's advocate here, as, as you know, we're negotiators, that's what we do for our clients. This is maybe the one chip that the Republicans hold right now, given their slim majority in the House. Um, and it may be the one thing they can do, the one thing they can hold over the heads of the Democrats in order to get what they want. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it is absolutely that. Um, but in some respects, and this is part of what concerns me about this kind of approach to governing on either side, is hostage taking and negotiations with hostage takers begets more hostage taking. Okay. Mm, right. That's why the Israelis don't negotiate with host- with terrorists. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know somebody's a hostage take. Well, that's sort of what they're doing. You know, the, 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 and I'm not saying the Democrats wouldn't do it on their side. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got this opportunity and they're taking a hostage and say, you know, give us some money or, or we, we kill a hostage. Well, then what happens when the roles are reversed? And let's say after the next election, the Republicans are the white and the Democrats are in the, um, in control of the house and it's time to, up the debt ceiling and the Democrats say, Hey, we want a 20% increase in social security. Else we're not giving you the debt ceiling. That's mm-hmm. my point is it's a bad way to govern because all it does, if it works is it begets more hostage taking um, rather than really what they should be doing is, Oh, I don't know. Let's pass an actual budget. Right. You know, we haven't done that in a few decades um, and deal with the honest question about spending and revenue in that forum, because that's where it was meant to be. The the whole thing was structured by the founding fathers that you would have a budget that was all then signed by the president, 
And then this debt ceiling thing was supposed to be a formality, really, mm-hmm. you know, just to say, okay, well, we're on budget and we'll catch it. You know, if we've got to reduce spending, we'll catch it in the next budget. Let's just go ahead and, you know, pay our debts um, so it doesn't impact the, you know, the economy negatively. So, it, yeah, it is the only chip they have right now, but boy, it's a bad chip to really play because you can right. find yourself in the opposite position. And then why would the other side play the chip? And we saw the same thing happen with um, when they were trying to deny uh, some of Trump's – this is in the Senate rather than the House yeah. – trying to deny some of Trump's uh, Supreme Court justice picks because they were arguing, well, it's an election year. You said we couldn't do that before. Of course, she was on the other right. foot then um, when, when when that happens. Exactly. Um, there is little talk that I have heard about solutions. And when I was looking for some today, I, I came across a solution – I'll put that in – heavy quotations around solution uh last year when congress was close to hitting the debt ceiling when the federal government was close to hitting the debt ceiling and uh there was an interesting novel idea put out there about how to solve the problem and i'm going to let shepherd smith on cnbc last year explain what that idea was one possible solution to the debt ceiling problem a specially minted platinum coin worth one trillion dollars It wouldn't need to be a particularly special-looking thing. Here's a rendering drawn up by our graphics team. A small platinum token that the U.S. Treasury simply gives a face value of $1 trillion and deposits it at the Federal Reserve. Then the Fed credits the Treasury account with $1 trillion that wouldn't count towards the national debt. Boom! Problem solved. Well, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was also asked about this in 2021. Here's what she had to say then. I'm opposed to it, and I don't believe that we should consider it seriously. It's really a gimmick, and what's necessary is for Congress to show that um, the world can count on America paying its debts. And apparently even former President Barack Obama had considered the idea, or at least that it was suggested to him while he was in the White House confronting his own debt crisis back in 2011. In 2017, he said this to Pod Save America. There were all kinds of wacky ideas about how potentially you could coin. You know, have this massive coin. I mean, it was like out of the Stone Age or something. I mean, I would like to give points for creativity on a trillion-dollar platinum coin, uh, but I feel like that would probably destroy the economy more than, than perhaps defaulting on the debt. Yeah, I mean, first of all, don't lose the coin. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that would be, you know, problematic. And what if somebody found it? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, the problem with that is, and we're experiencing in, in a different forum what the problem with that is. What you're doing then is you're just creating money and you're creating, um, you know, liquidity in the market that didn't exist a moment before you created it. Um, and a trillion's a lot of money. Um mm-hmm. We're experiencing that a little bit when you think about what we did with COVID. We printed money. Yep. Now, we didn't do it in coin form, but we basically just invented mm-hmm. about $5 trillion of money, which got us through COVID. And I'm not saying that, you know, we, it wasn't something we had to do. But now what we're experiencing is massive inflation because of it. Because the more you create money, the less that money has in purchasing value, you know, one only needs to go back to, you know, post-World War One Germany when inflation rates went absolutely insane. And you had mm-hmm. – because they, all they were doing was printing money. Um, and you had people carrying wheelbarrows full of paper, you know, Deutschmarks at the time 
just to pay for groceries. So, and that, that wouldn't happen here. You wouldn't create that kind of an issue, but right. create a trillion, create a couple trillion, three trillion while you're at it. I mean, mint a few of those coins and then we don't have to worry about this in a while. It's all well and good, but now you're going to see the rest of the economy go, oh, there's a whole lot more cash than what we thought there was. And mm-hmm. we're going to see interest rates go up and we're dealing with that right now. And it's a bugger to get rid of. Right. You know, because what the only way to get rid of it is to jack up inflation rates. And now we're seeing housing market go down and cars go down because things are much more expensive than they otherwise would have been. Mm-hmm. And I, I can think of, you mentioned uh, post-World War One Germany. I can think of uh, several African dictatorships in the, in the 80s and 90s that did the exact same thing, even into the early 2000s, doing the exact same thing and saw their economies collapse as well. So obviously, uh, $1 trillion coin, not the right solution. Uh, so what are some good solutions? Uh, Senator Joe Manchin was on CNN State of the Union this weekend. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't pull an audio clip for it. But he suggested uh, to make, in particular, Social Security and Medicare more viable in the long term to either raise or eliminate the FICA uh, cap on the FICA tax that you pay out of your, your payroll taxes. What do you think that – do you think that would help – make at least those two programs a little bit more sustainable uh, in the long term? Well, Manchin's on to a a really important point here. And it's not Mm -hmm. something that should, um, you know, that we should think is is sneaking up on us. Okay. Alan Greenspan, you know, years and years ago, the Fed chair, I think one of his last um, times he testified before Congress, he talked about both, Social Security and Medicare. He talked about them as unfunded mandates and that we were, in essence, writing checks we couldn't cash. Um, and way back then, he said, you, we are going to have to deal with this. And, and part of his thoughts were increasing the age of eligibility for both of them. You know, he said, we're living longer. Mm-hmm. We need to think about, you know, why is 65 the magic year? Maybe it should be 67. Maybe it should be 70. He also talked about making them means tested. You know, why should if you if you retire incredibly wealthy, you know, why should you get Social Security? Mm-hmm. Um, if you retire with enough money, should you pay for your own Medicare? Uh, if these are social programs, should we? Um, and he talked about potentially increasing the revenue that drives them to continue to support them. That would mean increasing the, you know, the cap on tax or the actual tax rate. Now, Greenspan could say that because he was on his way out and he wasn't right. running for any election. He already had his Nobel Prize in economics. Mm-hmm. He was done. Trying to talk about one of those things, and I was sort of even surprised that Manchin mentioned it, it was a great way to become the ex-senator of whatever state you're from. Right. Which is why nobody really wants to deal with the, you know, talk about an inconvenient truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to have to at some point. Yeah. No, I, I thought it was an interesting point because, and I don't think the the anchor, I think it was Dana Bash, she didn't um, quite understand it at first because, like, you would raise the Medicare age. You said, no, 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 no. They would talk about the FICA tax because, you know, after a certain you right. know, point, you don't pay anymore. Um, and he said that, right. of course, he kind of pointed to that, well, there's the 1% not paying their fair share in that particular instance. And you can argue about whether or not yeah. that that's actually the case. But at least it was an idea that was put forward. The, the rest seems to be either finger pointing of they're going to cut it and they're going to, you know, spend it more. Could one possible solution be, because I know Biden has been has pushed for the public option before and it hasn't realized, but if Americans can buy into Medicare, do you think that um, that could help lower or that could help make the program a little bit more sustainable 
if they can buy into Medicare, similar to how you know United Healthcare Insurance or Blue Cross Blue Shield or Anthem or whoever makes their money by selling insurance? Um, it can help. Now the question becomes, you know, if you're going to sell at a competitive premium um, so that people would want to buy it, we're not talking about massive margins. Mm-hmm. So how, it would take a lot of people to buy in to actually um, help a great deal. I mean, every little bit helps. And then you'd have to make sure that it didn't get used for any other purpose. I mean, our federal government has a really good way of taking money that's supposed to be for one thing Mm -hmm. and actually using it for the general fund or for something else. Um, But sure, I mean, having a, you know, a Medicare buy-in at age, let's say 50 or whatever, um, could turn profit. And that profit could help make the Medicare fund more sustainable. Mm -hmm. Um, Doesn't do anything for Social Security. Right. Um, But even with that, um, at some point, either at the individual program level, we're going to have to look at what those programs do um, and how they're funded and how they're, you know, how money's used for them. Or we're just going to have to look at an increase in taxation overall. I mean, I, you know, a lot of people are going to like suddenly, you know, you know, hiss at me. And uh, But when we can't continue on the current path that we're on, adding massive amounts of debt, it will eventually crash the economy. Mm-hmm. And there really isn't enough spending cuts to curb what we've already got on the books. So there's going to have to be a tax increase at some point. Mm-hmm. I guarantee it or else we'll, or else there'll be a collapse and then it'll, that tax increase will have looked like a, you know, a real good thing to do. Right. And, and speaking of that, um, there's a, uh, of adding taxes. That is um, McCarthy floated the idea this, uh, this past week about a national sales tax that seems like it would be, um, similar to uh, the VAT tax they have in Europe and England and, and Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a national sales tax, uh, of course, this this bill he introduced would abolish the IRS and replace it with a 30% national sales tax. I think that's a very good way of being the ex-congressman of any state if you're going to sit there and say, now you have to oh, pay yeah. a national yeah. sales tax. I mean, here in uh, Michigan, I pay 6% on everything that's not essential. And I know it's uh, it's, I think it's a little bit lower than that in North Carolina right now. But you go to a place like California, mm-hmm. New York, yeah. depending on the product, it's already 10, 15 percent. Right. Right. Yeah. But I mean, it, it, at least and I agree with you, I, you know, abolishing the IRS and doing a 30 percent sales tax. I mean, first of all, if you're in the upper income brackets and you're already paying 36 percent on your marginal stuff. Yeah, buddy, let's get rid of the federal income tax and yeah. make it 30 percent. I'm I'd love that. Um but I think it's a that's a that's a non-starter. A a small national sales tax that gets tacked on, combined with some logical spending cuts and program review, I think is you know the kind of thing that it will take to get us out of this sort mm-hmm. of hole we're in. The other thing that people need to understand when I talk about sort of the hole we're in, we are now an entirely different stratosphere of debt than pretty much all other comparable countries, Mm -hmm. you know, and people like to point to a lot of European countries with their nationalized healthcare and, you know, the high tax rates and say, Oh my God, isn't it terrible? Look at what they do with their tax rate. Well, that's true. But if, if, if there was some big interstellar bank that was looking to loan money right now, those folks have a much better credit rating than we do. Right. Um, and, And what I mean by that is if you look at, um, you know, debt to GDP ratio. What is your percentage, your debt as a percentage of your total economy? 
And and the concept there is that, you know, obviously it's like individuals. A person making a million dollars a year can easily handle $25,000 of credit card debt. A person making $25,000 a year can't handle $25,000 worth of credit card debt. So you do it in relative stages. So we are right now at 128% debt to GDP. We have more debt than we have full national economy for one year. That's the highest number it's ever been in our history. In World War II, when we financed an entire world war, we, we peaked at 119%. Now, a lot of people say, well, a lot of that's COVID. We spent a lot of money, and we did, but so did everybody else. So how does our 128 compare to other countries? Well, Italy, and Italy has never been the champion of fiscal responsibility. Italy's at 119. They beat us. Now, Greece, which is considered by a lot of economists to be about as bad as it gets, mm-hmm. um, is at 140. Everybody else is below 100. France is at 99. Canada is at 92. The UK is at 79. China's at 62. Germany's at 64. And that horrible country of Mexico that people are just, oh, my God, it must be terrible there, is at 42%. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, I mean, we are literally have twice the amount of debt as Germany. And they went through COVID like we did. So that's my point about at some point we got to fix this thing because we are way over our skis on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and much more so than any other, you know, comparable country. Right. Well, we'll have articles uh, about the debt ceiling, about how it might affect Medicare and uh we default. We'll talk about it here on the Flatlining Podcast, but you can find those articles linked in the show notes at flatlining.net or wherever you're listening to this podcast. This week is National CRNA Week. I don't know if you knew that or not, Ron, but I heard that on the radio the other day, uh, which is celebrating the practice of nurse anesthetists in the United States. And you're going to be going to a anesthesia conference later this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Going to be down in Orlando at the uh, ASA Advanced Conference and very much looking forward to it. it. I don't know if it's too late or not to register, but if you are going to be there, you can meet Ron at the Anesthesiology Business Event in Orlando, Florida, as well as Alice Allison Morseberger from Fulcrum Strategies. We work in a booth there. You can find more details online and see what other events we'll be going to at flatlining.net. Just click Upcoming Events. Ron, I was looking for our uh, second main topic this week, and I was unable to find anything that I thought could fill an entire segment. So we're going to do something that we haven't done uh, in, I think, several months now. And I kind of want to go through some kind of healthcare news items and get your take on them and how uh, they might affect doctors across the country. These are A lot of these are somewhat local issues, but they can be expanded out 
Uh, and it's possible that, you know, if something happens in one state, you might see it picked up in another state. Now, this is a story from a couple of years ago, actually. And uh, there's some talk, though, that it might pop up in other states. So we're going to talk about it today. And, and the first one is a ballot initiative uh, that will be on the ballot in uh, Massachusetts. And a ballot initiative for the states that don't have it is direct democracy. You get to vote up or down on particular things, either a law or a constitutional amendment. And this particular ballot initiative would mandate a nurse-to-patient ratio. Um, and I'm curious what you think about this kind of regulation in healthcare, about something like a nurse-to-patient ratio or, or even a physician-to-patient ratio. So I, I um, am very much opposed to this kind of uh, prescribed legislation where there's very little flexibility to it. Um, I understand the driver behind it, you know, is quality of care and, and you know, that um, and don't disagree with the idea of, you know, you get too many patients for an individual nurse and quality care. Goes, I get it. But the problem with sort of the cookie cutter approach is it becomes very difficult to handle um, anything outside of that. And, and the perfect example is this. Let's say that Massachusetts had passed this and they'd passed it several years ago, what would they have done during COVID? Mm -hmm. What would they have done when things got full? Because I can guarantee you when things were at their worst and hospitals were full, the kind of nurse to patient ratio that they're talking about this bill would have been violated. Okay. So what does a hospital do? You know, I, I can't grow a nurse overnight. I've got 30% of my nursing staff out sick with COVID. This is all I have. It's not like I'm trying to save money and not hire nurses. This is all I've got available to me. And the law says that if I've only got this many nurses, I can only have this many patients. So a hospital would be in compliance with the law to shut their doors. And then what happens? What happens when all the hospitals in Boston, let's say, are shutting their doors? Because I, I don't want to be in violation of a state law. And mm -hmm. where do those patients go? You know, so I, I don't like it because it, it it creates these absolutes and life isn't that black and white. Um, I understand the need for quality and we've got joint commission accreditation. If a hospital screws up, they can lose their Medicare certification. I mean, there's checks and balances we have for quality of care. But once you start doing these prescriptive measures, you got to be careful about what the side effects are going to be. Yeah, especially if we end up in a situation where you can't hire people. Um, th yeah. There's just the market isn't like we are now. I mean, we're in a very tough labor market right now. Um, additionally, another thing that was in here was that it, uh, it, it, you couldn't fire or, re or release nurses to get yourself down to whatever the minimum ratio was. And it could be fined up to $25,000. Um, which is almost now a, hey, whoever you have, you got to keep and, and unless you're right. going to pick up more patients, which may not be possible in some circumstances. But it, it was kind of an interesting uh, thing that popped up that I saw that, that why on earth, <laughs> why on earth would uh, anyone in their right mind vote for that uh, other than people who don't know what they're talking about? Well, it's, I mean, you, you hear, if you just hear the, we want to make sure that there's not too many patients for each nurse because that's bad care. You go, oh, you know what? I, that's a good idea. We want to make sure nurses aren't overloaded. I want my care to be good. Well, that's fine. It's just you got to think about all those other things that this does, what it does to cost, what it does to, like I said, is it better to be, have one extra patient for every nurse in the middle of a pandemic and everybody cared for, or these poor patients on the side of the, you know, the, 
the sidewalk with the hospital saying, I'm sorry, I can't open up my doors. I've got a bed. I just don't have enough nurses, mm-hmm. and I don't want to violate state law. Yeah. So you have fun out there. You yeah. know. Another one of the things I want to talk about is a uh, resolution that was uh, rather a bill, rather, because there is a technical difference between those two that was brought up in the House this week. And, Ron, uh, I'm sure if you've been watching the news, you've probably heard over and over again uh, a clip from a 60 Minutes interview that President Biden did uh, back in September, although the clip I'm about to play is not the one you've seen on the news, and we're not going to talk about that particular story, but rather this one. The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's But the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing, and I think this is a perfect example of it. The pandemic is over, the president declared earlier last year. Well, uh, there's a certain congressman who is trying to make that a law, and that would be Brett Guthrie from Kentucky, Republican from Kentucky. He introduced the Pandemic is Over Act, which is a bill to end the COVID-19 public health emergency. Um, He cited this particular statement in September, although they pointed out that the administration just authorized a 12th extension of the uh, public health emergency. And it's got several co-sponsors, most of whom look to be Republican just by glancing at it. Ron, do you think ending the COVID-19 public health emergency needs to come from Congress or from the administration? Well, I I think in a perfect world, they would both agree. Right. You know, because ending emergency, um, you know, the emergency condition and all that that does for, for the administration and what they can do, you know, that state of emergency in a perfect world, that would be based on the facts and the situation involved. And they'd both go, Hey, you know what? We probably don't need this anymore. Just like in a perfect world under the world under the War Powers Act, you know, the Congress and the President would go, Hey, we you know, we don't need to be fighting in that in that country anymore. I mean, now we don't live in that perfect world right now, which is why this is a an argument about is the pandemic over, you know, why the House and Congress feels like they need to pass you know, uh, a law, you know, then, and really what they're going to do is force the president to not um, sign it or to veto it right. um, to score political points here. I really don't think both on the administration side and on the Congress side that this is as much about the pandemic as it is about, the, you know, the continued political theater and political fight. Mm-hmm. We saw the in the midterm elections, uh, contrary to what some Republicans hope for, COVID-19 was not really on the ballot. It seemed that most people did not vote about whether and whether or not they liked how COVID-19 was handled in their state. Um, Michigan's a prime example of that because of the Democratic sweep here. So why bother keeping the public health emergency if Americans don't really care anymore? Or why bother getting well, rid of you it know, on the flip side? It. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. And, and you're right, the, the midterms tend to prove what, what a lot of people understand is that the American public, you know, in a lot of ways has the memory of a gnat, you know, I mean, yeah. um, and, and but put more nicely, it's the things that are important are the things that we're dealing with today. And you're right, for the general public, we all think the pandemic's over to a large degree anyways, and has been for a while. You know, I'm not wearing masks. I'm not doing this. I'm not mm-hmm. doing that. I don't know a bunch of people in the hospital. Um, you know, I'm not going to funerals every week. I, okay, it's done. And so this whole theater about whether there's an emergent state of emergency or whether they have to have a lot of, I think the general American public goes, who cares? You know, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really impact me that there's this, you know, 
federal state of emergency, nor do I really care if there's a law to get rid of it. Um, only you people in D.C. seem to care about this because right. the rest of us have moved on. Yeah, in DC, which is really funny because again they're fighting about something that most of the rest of us really could care less about. Right, and, and DC held on to its COVID restrictions significantly longer than than a lot of the other states, yeah. uh, including the ones that surrounded it. Which, of course, in such a major metropolitan area, it's kind of pointless to have differing you know, restrictions if you're coming across yeah. the border from Virginia where you don't have to wear a mask, but now you do. In the anyway, we don't have to get into that whole debate. I am curious, and I didn't put this in our show notes, but. Um, it, some newspapers were reporting over the weekend that the former White House COVID uh, coordinator, Jeff Zients, was going to be the new chief of staff. And I was curious if you had any thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about him well enough to know how he, how he would be as a chief of staff. Um, you know, I think if somebody goes back and looks critically at how um, we handled from start to finish the whole COVID experience, including, you know, the way the federal government dealt with it, the shutdowns. I think there are some things you could go back and look at and go, wow, we really knocked that one out of the park. Mm-hmm. You know, the development of the vaccines, how our professionals inside hospitals and doctor's offices adapted so quickly. And I think you can also look at some things and go, my God, did we miss that. Right. But hindsight's twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. You know, I, looking back now, I think there's a lot of things the federal government did wrong. I think there's a bunch of things they did right. Um, and and then I get back to, but so what now, you know, so if, if this guy's going to come in and want to, you know, relive the COVID days and, uh, then man, that's the wrong thing to do. If he says, Hey, I, I have experience as chief of staff, forget about COVID. This is about, you know, running an administration mm-hmm. going forward, then good on you. You know? And I th- and I tend to think that that's more of what is going to be just because he wasn't I mean, he's not a public health official. He was he was oh. essentially the chief of staff of the covid response, uh, for lack right. of a better right. term. Um, and, and I think that that yeah, he was uh, an administrator. Yeah, he was an administrator. And I think that that if yeah. anything, maybe that lends well if you've been able to administrate during an emergency to be able to administrate on a day to day basis. Ron, the last thing I've got on our show notes here is a Gallup poll from um, not too long ago, and I mentioned it in the Friday Pulse Check last week, and it's American views on healthcare. And you may have noticed that we haven't done a COVID vaccine monitor in a while, and that's because the questions that they're asking aren't that interesting anymore. It's the same stuff we've talked about before, um, you know, whether or not measles, mumps, rubella vaccines are up or down based off COVID vaccines. They are down a little bit, but other than that, there's not a whole lot of interesting questions there. So the most recent survey that I saw that was interesting was this particular one on American views about healthcare. The headline from Gallup being Americans sour on U.S. healthcare quality. And I know we've talked about before because quality for us has a very specific meaning because we put it in our healthcare equation about having access, quality, and affordability and you know whether or not you're going to, you can have two but not three. And we've frequently said we have the quality and the access, not necessarily affordability. Um, but this is apparently showing that um, few, less than half Americans believe that American healthcare is excellent or good. Um, 48% of them do, whether others either think it's only fair or poor. And I'm curious what, uh, what you think about that. 
Well, so one of the things that's really interesting, and you know, when you get sort of macro numbers like this, mm-hmm. is what what are the drivers? Yeah. You know, what's a person's definition of quality? What's really at play here? Is it I had a personal experience and had a drug interaction that was bad, and so I think bad, or is it something else? Um, now, I, I tell you, when I first saw this, one of my theories, hypotheses, if you will, when I looked at what happened with, you know, because the, the overall view of quality seemed to be fairly constant from, yeah. you know, about 2014 to 2019, mm-hmm. you know, and it was very close tight range. Now, you know, there's some thought that it went down in 2014 for various reasons, but anyway, so, and then you see this precipitous drop in 2020 and 21, 22, that sort of that two-year period. Mm-hmm. You also see an increase in the percentage of people that rated it at poor. You know, it went from like 14% in 2020 to 21% in 2022. So my first hypothesis was, I wonder if this is COVID. Right. I wonder if it's how COVID became healthcare, became political. And there was some breakdown in the data about splitting between Republicans and Democrats that tend to support that hypothesis mm-hmm. because the drop in that percentage that think it's good quality was fairly high in Republicans along with a pickup in, in you know, the, the people who thought it was poor quality. And so I wonder if this idea of quality healthcare has to do with, well, I got forced to take a shot or I, you know, I still hear, and it just drives me insane. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they overstated all those deaths. Those people really didn't die of COVID. Oh right. my God! Um, so, I, you know, it's a hypothesis. I don't. I can't say definitively that that's it, but I wonder if that's what that drop in quality mm-hmm. is. Is it's really along political lines, and it's really a, a thing about COVID, not not real delivery of care quality. Well, I think you might be onto something because one of the other numbers in here is because that was they asked, you know, what do you feel about the overall system and the quality of the system here? One of the later questions asked is, what do you feel about the quality of the care that you specifically have received? And in that case, it was overwhelming. 72% of people said that their care was either uh, excellent or good. Now, like you said, there's a little bit of a dip there between um, 2020 and 2022, where it's gone down from it's fairly consistent around 80, 79. Um, but overwhelmingly, Americans think that the healthcare they receive is good, which points to the, you know, if it's three in 10 Americans that are saying, oh, mine is so bad, that seems to be a little bit more on par with what we normally see. Whereas these people may be more along the lines of, hey, well, my care is pretty good. But, you know, that guy over there, here's here's what I heard about him when I read about him on the Internet. The other thing I thought was interesting when they broke it out by age, where 55 and up were more likely to say that the healthcare in the U.S. was excellent or good. Of course, those are the people that are using healthcare the most. They're the people that are most experienced with the system. I'm curious what you think about those two, um, whether or not you agree with my particular analysis on that or if you have a a different thought. No, no, I think you're I think you're. You're right on. I think it's all those things where you start to say, wow, that that seems to correlate. One of the other things that I looked at that I thought was was interesting in this, I think in that, you know, your healthcare, I think there were like 6% of the people that said that their personal experience with healthcare in this country was poor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. 9% of the people in this country are uninsured. Right. 
You know, so that I thought was really interesting. It's wow. You know, I would assume that if you are uninsured, your personal perception of healthcare would have to be poor because of what you really have access to. And it doesn't look that way. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, either um, only two thirds of the people who are uninsured viewed it as poor and, and nobody who has insurance views it as poor or less than half of the people who are uninsured viewed it as poor because some of the people with insurance viewed it as poor. That was mm -hmm. really telling to me in a country where, you know, nine, 10% of our population doesn't have insurance. Only 6% of the people think that healthcare they receive is poor. Mm -hmm. Finally, the other, the, the last thing I want to point out was it seems like um, they looped in cost into the quality question mm -hmm. and, and whether or not that affects people's uh, opinions on that. They're, they asked, are you generally satisfied or dissatisfied with the total cost of health care in this country? And are you generally dissatisfied or satisfied with the total cost that you pay for health care? Um, most people um, seem to be dissatisfied with the total cost in the country. But again, over half of people responded saying, but the cost I pay is is fair, um, which is another point that I thought was interesting. Yeah, and, and that, you know, I think is hopefully uh, a population that's starting to become a little more educated on this. Mm -hmm. Because, and, and that would track with this idea that, well, for most people, I don't really pay that much out of my, somebody else is paying, either the government or my employer. Right. And so I'm insulated from it. So seeing that, you know, people are saying, no, I think the total cost is bad. Me personally, actually, I'm not that bad. Mm -hmm. To me, is hopefully a fairly educated position because that's really what's going on is the total cost is bad for the country, but most people aren't feeling it yet. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have uh, the results uh, of this Gallup poll in the show notes for this program, as well as the uh, press release from Representative Guthrie, who is introducing a bill to end the COVID-19 pandemic and that look back at the uh, Massachusetts ballot initiative. We want to hear from you. If you've got comments or questions, please let us know. You can put them at the comments at flatlining.net or send us an email, flatlining at substack.com. I'm also at Radio Handley on Twitter, and Ron is at Ron Haugen. You can tweet us there and stay up to date with us to make sure you're getting all of the most recent posts from Flatlining and uh, anything else that we publish at Focus Strategies. Ron, we're just about out of time, and so thank you again for coming on the podcast this week. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget you can engage with Ron and myself and other listeners of this program in our chat, which is available exclusively on the free Substack app. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.